Good evening. evening. Greet you all in the name of Jesus. And thank you, Vernon, for that vote of confidence. We appreciate that there's hope that we will still be one by the end of the week. Tonight, I'd like to think for a few minutes here again about the creation and the beginning of the world. When God created the world, he said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let there be other things, and there was other things. He said, let us make man. We see that the triune Godhead already in this communication in the Godhead. Us, who is the us? There's a communion there. And we see in this very beginning, the first chapters of the Bible, we see God exercising authority upon the world. We see God then further as he creates man. He gives man delegated authority. He speaks to the man and he tells him to have dominion over the land. He tells him to subdue the earth. Those are words of dominion. And it is God commanding him to do those things, exercising authority over the man and giving the man authority. Then we see a little further into the story of creation, we see that God creates woman, given a supportive role. When Adam named all of the animals and he's watching closely for someone that he can relate to closely, there was no one there for that. And I believe God knew that would be the case just to help Adam understand his need. And then God puts Adam to sleep and takes one of his ribs and creates Eve to be a help, meet for him, or a helper, or an aid, or a support, one that is perfectly created to meet the needs of man and to bring about perfection of mankind in two pieces that would then become one. And again, we see that here in authority that God created the man and then he created the woman and he created the woman to support the man, to be a supportive role. He created submission and male leadership right there in the Garden of Eden before there was a curse. I want to make sure you all understand that. Sometimes we get the impression that that interaction where there is male leadership in the world and there is the expectation of a woman to submit to male leadership, that's somehow a result of the curse. That's simply not true. It is because God created it that way, and it is perfection God created it that way. So what I see here in the very beginning of the scriptures is that God is authority. Just like he is love, he is truth, he is holy, an aspect of his character, an aspect of who God is, is authority. It flows from him, from who he is. It's part of created, of being created in his image. To have authority, to exercise authority, to act in authority, these are things that God did and that God does. And I would just encourage us to think about tonight that if you're sitting here tonight and you don't like authority, you don't like God. Okay, that's how direct I would say it to you. Authority is from the Godhead, from who he is. Authority exists on the earth 
because it's God's perfect plan for man. Now, I'd like to read a few scriptures and think about some of the places specifically that God has given authority to man. Let's start in the book of Romans in chapter 13. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Romans 13, 1. Let every soul or every living person be subject unto the higher powers. The word powers here in the King James Version is the idea of authority more than it is of, of having power. For there is no power or no authority but of God. The powers or authorities that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Now this authority is given by God specifically to exercise wrath on evil. I'm not going to spend much time here, but if we look at the details he gives here, we understand clearly that he's speaking here about civil authority. This is not the authority of a Christian. This is not the authority of the church he's speaking of. He's talking about authority in civil government, in, in order in this world. And this was God's idea again, and God created this, and God gave it. So the first area where we see this authority is in that of civil authority or civil government. If you turn over to Ephesians chapter 6, I'd like to notice another area here where he gives a place of authority. Ephesians 6 and verse 5. He says here, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. So he's speaking here to the relationship between servants and masters. Now, we don't have masters and servants today in the same way that they did in that culture. But we still have a workplace environment where there is the exchange of goods, the exchange of time to produce goods for money to feed ourselves and to take care of our families. And this is an area of the workplace. And again, it's an area that the Bible specifically addresses where there is authority. And we could look at other scriptures to bring that out as well. So we have authority in the civil government. We have authority in the workplace. If we just turn back a page or two to Ephesians 5, and begin reading in verse 22, we find another area where God created and intended authority. Wives, 
Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Continuing in chapter 6, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Another area where we see authority that God created, God designed, is in the home. Husbands and wives and children, and there's instruction from the scriptures of how that interaction should look, and who's responsible, and what levels, and who ought to obey who, and who ought to submit to who. And this is the the authority that God delegated and created. And one more area that we have intertwined in these verses that I just read, in fact, this passage is primarily about the church, is what Paul says, is one last area where I'd like to identify that there is authority. It says here that Christ is the head of the church. He is the one who has ultimate authority in the church. It's his body. But in that church, he also utilizes then, and we could look at other scriptures to bear this out, but earthly human men in leadership to direct services, to teach the believers, to administer discipline, to take oversight, and to give clear direction for practical application in daily living. This is the role of church leadership that he delegates under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands tonight, but the majority of this audience holds some position of authority that God has delegated. And holding a position of authority is a tremendous responsibility. You are an instrument of God to bring about the image of God and the relationship with God, the understanding of God through that channel of authority that he has delegated. And I would just encourage each of you, all of us, that hold positions of authority to tread firmly but softly, always clinging humbly and closely to the one who gives authority. There is no good authority unless there is a close connection with the source of authority. 
to be as gracious and merciful as possible while maintaining purity or obedience as the Bible directs us. That's the place we ought to be as we hold positions of authority. As gracious and merciful as possible, but not to let go of what God intended that authority to do in the first place. So if you're a father, you're responsible to lead the home in a godly way. You can't apologize for that. You can't turn aside from that, but do it as mercifully and graciously as you can. And there are many scriptures that we could look at that describe how we ought to conduct ourselves as authorities in different places in responsibilities that God has given to us. I'd like to think about the reality and the problem of living in an anti-authority society. I'd just like us to reflect for a moment on what the air is like that we breathe every day. I'm not talking about the oxygen content or the nitrogen or whatever, the oxygen that we take in or the air we breathe. I mean the, the thought patterns of the world around us the way they think about authority, and the influence that this inevitably has on us as well. So again, I'm just going to go through these authorities quickly and have you reflect on how people view civil authority. The vast majority of Americans today view the government as a place, as something that ought to serve them. What's good for me Whoever gives me the most free stuff, whoever's going to give me the most benefit, whoever's going to cut my taxes the most, that's who's going to be the best government. When it doesn't do what they want specifically, then they complain. And the amount of slandering that flies back and forth within government from two sides in the United States, but also the amount of, what should I use? evil speaking against government and against authority, civil authority that we hear constantly in our world today, possibly even from some of us, there is very little or no respect left for government or elected officials. And you think about the, the way the world views this local civil authority, like police officers and that type of authority, and the way people talk about police officers, and the way they look at police officers, in some cases how they disrespect them. This is a reflection of how our world thinks about this delegated civil authority that God has given. The Bible says that they are a minister of God to, for our good. Is that how we think of them? In the workplace, the large majority of workers today feel entitled to a paycheck. Regardless of the quality of work that they do, regardless if they show up late occasionally or regularly, no matter if they take longer breaks than they're supposed to in their lunch break instead of a half hour's 45 minutes, no matter if they spend much of their time on their own cell phone devices while they're supposed to be working, none of those things matter. They expect to be paid for the work, I put that in quotations, that they do. It's completely acceptable today to degrade the boss, to run down the company, to badmouth and demand more. And you know, there was a time where we had, in the labor world, a need for unions because there were powerful rich men that were mistreating their workers. 
But that time, I believe, largely has passed and we have now tipped over, you know, pendulum swings happen in society. Today we have labor unions that are entitling and enabling workers to demand things that are completely unreasonable in many cases. And the the work environment is now so pro-employee that it's very difficult for employers even to conduct business and to operate in this environment. Think about the way the world thinks about home. And there is many things I could point to here, but one of the things that strikes me as I reflect on my childhood even in reading, you know about the Berenstein Bears storybooks? You remember how things are portrayed in that household? You know, Sister Bear is very capable. Brother Bear is a bit of a bumbling fool. Mama Bear, she's always got it together and she knows exactly what needs to happen next. Papa Bear is constantly making mistakes and running himself into trouble. That's a reflection of how our world thinks about the home. Most American television programs portray dad as a a complete loser, if there is even a dad in the program. And mom is this attractive, got it together, totally in control woman. That's the image that is portrayed. And we could look at what what has happened in secular society with this movement of feminism that came along just not that long ago and has left a major mark on our society. And it's tragic and in a twisted way comical. I shouldn't even think that way probably. But you now have this feminist movement marching so far and so fast that they're turning around and eating their own. That's what's happening if you look at the extreme movement of what has taken place. Children are not viewed as a blessing, but as a burden. And there are so many ways that's represented from the abortion industry to the career pursuits of women today. On and on I could go about how women and men as well view children as as a burden, as something to be done way later in life, if at all. And then when they are brought into the world, they are allowed to run around undisciplined completely and they become little terrorists in the home and they are left out of control to run out into this society. That's the home. And in the church, there are terrible misconceptions about church authority that are beginning to bear fruit in our own circles. We have reacted in some ways negatively to a generation of some leaders who operated in a very authoritative, controlling way, a very hard-handed, this is the way we do it, don't ask any questions, don't expect any answers, just do what I say mentality. We're reacting to that. And we're in turn then following an ungodly pattern in the mainstream churches around us. A pattern where the pastor is simply a facilitator. He's just to be at the whim of the people. They hire him, they fire him. They bring him in as long as he does what they want, and then they get rid of him if he doesn't. And this is the mentality. We've embraced democracy in our churches. You know, democracy is not a godly thing necessarily. We need to understand that. There is a difference between doing the will of God and doing the will of the people. And in many cases, we no longer believe that men ordained by God and empowered by the Holy Spirit 
actually have the authority to direct our spiritual lives. We, we don't believe that in many cases anymore. And we have today Christian leaders that are teaching that practical application to scriptural truth in the real world. In other words, setting standards for how the church ought to conduct their lives in the world is spiritual abuse. We have people teaching that today. And you would be surprised in some of the places that that pops up. Brothers and sisters, tonight this is the air, again if I can use that analogy, that we're breathing. This is the influence that is around us. And it's impacting us probably in far more ways than what we think. It's like spending time in a smoker's home. If you've ever done that, man, if you stop to visit someone, one of your neighbors that has a tobacco habit, and you come home and your wife's, you know that reaction? What is she smelling? The influence of his smoking habit on you, on your clothes. That's what's happening to us. And I would just like us to think about what is that smell that is on us? What is that influence that is coming at us from this mentality about authority? And I want to put this to you very gently because it seems like such a hostile thing, but this is literally rebellion. That's what it is. It is the face of rebellion, the reaction of rebellion. And the rebellion is the most... Maybe I shouldn't say it this way, but it is one of the most wicked sins that there is. It's what got the devil cast out of heaven in the very first place. It's what made him the devil, this rebellion. The pure and perfect nature of Christ is one of full submission and obedience. He came to do the Father's will. That was His purpose. That's what He said He came to the world to do. And when it describes the mind of Christ in Philippians chapter 2, it tells us that he took on no reputation. That wasn't important to him. He was a servant, it tells us. And it tells us that he became obedient unto death. These are the ideas and the, the pursuit of the mind of Christ, the perfect nature of Christ. And this is the idea of submitting to the authority that God has ordained in our lives. The devil's nature is exactly the opposite. His purpose, his outlook, his goal is one of full rebellion and complete disobedience. To disobey is to rebel. What is rebellion saying? Well, the definition of rebellion is opposition to one in authority or dominance. It's in a more... uh, physical way, it's an open or armed and usually unsuccessful defiance or resistance to an established government. It's resistance to or defiance of any authority, control, or tradition. Now what is it, what are we saying when we disobey or when we rebel? Maybe you resist that idea, that word, but disobedience is rebellion, that's what it is. When we rebel, when we disobey, what we're saying is that I know better than the authority that is instructing me on what I ought to do. When I was a young boy and I disobeyed my father, it's because I believed that I knew better than what his instructions were to me. When I drive one way and the civil government tells me to drive another way, it's because I believe, in my estimation of the facts, 
that it's just fine for me to do it this way, even though they tell me I should do it that way. Do you see how that is a very real reaction? And when we say that I know better, we follow that logic back, and you know what we're going to find? We're going to find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 14, where the devil was cast out of heaven because it says there that I will exalt myself into the heavens. I will have a throne. Like It's the exact same logic that brings us to that place. And brothers and sisters, tonight I would just have us think about, does God care about rebellion? The title of the message tonight is, If Korah Could Speak. And maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're saying, but you don't know our president. I don't know him personally. I've heard a few things about him. You don't know my boss. You don't know my dad. You don't know our church leaders. You don't know my husband. Let's just take a little walk in the Bible here in the book of 1 Peter. Would you turn there with me, please? Beginning in 1 Peter chapter 2, this entire book is written dealing with this concept of suffering and responding to authority and how we ought to do that. And he deals with this different levels of authority and how we should respond to them. And in verse 13 of chapter 2, he says, Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent to by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well, For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Do you know who was the king when Peter wrote this letter? He was a good man, right? A righteous man. No, Nero was king when Peter wrote this letter. Do you know anything about Nero? Nero was literally a crazy man. I'm not just making that up. Nero took the throne when he was 16 years old, 16 or 17 years old. And one of the first things that he did is poison one of his rivals, his stepbrother, that was potentially going to take over the throne. Shortly thereafter, his mother convinced his father, who had allowed him to become king, that she, he should give the ultimate authority to this son, Nero. And as soon as he had done that, mysteriously, Claudius died. And most people believe that he was also poisoned. It wasn't long, and Nero killed his own mother by poison. He tried multiple devious plans that never worked out, including creating this wonderful boat that would somehow collapse and have her sink when she was out on a boating evening by herself and she escaped and swam to shore so eventually just gave up and he asked one of his slaves to stab her to death. This was Nero. By the time he is 30 years old and commits suicide, he has killed most of his closest family members. 
Do you know what Nero did to Christians? Thousands of Christians lost their lives at the hand of Nero. He did tremendous, horrible things from having them fed to dogs to having them burned, to having them crucified upside down. It's believed that Paul was beheaded during that time and Peter was hung upside down, the one who wrote this, and crucified upside down because he wouldn't be crucified right side up. That tradition tells us those things. Nero would use Christians as lights for his party. He would set them in a barrel of oil and the person was the wick that kept that light burning so that he could have his disgusting parties where immorality of every imaginable kind that you can imagine, and I don't want you to imagine, I'm not going to talk about it tonight because it's so disgusting, but that's who he was. And yet Peter says here to honor the king, to submit yourselves to every authority of him so that we can be fulfilling the will of God in verse 15. Do we only listen to good authorities? Do we only submit to good authorities? Look a little further here in verse 18 in chapter 2. He addresses this area of the workplace authority. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. And then he says, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. So if you've got a good bass, good bass, good boss tonight, Lucky you. God bless you. And you ought to submit to him. But do you know what Peter's saying? Not just the good bosses, but also the froward. Do you know what froward means? Literally means unreasonable. That's what it means. Maybe some of you work for unreasonable bosses. You ought to honor them as well. That's exactly the point of what Peter is teaching here. The idea that there are harsh, unreasonable men in authority does not mean we don't honor them. In chapter 3, Peter addresses the area of homes. And he says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. I know this is a loaded subject and there's a lot of things to talk about here, but I just want to highlight that he is saying specifically that wives should honor and respect Husbands be subject to husbands, even ones that don't obey the word of God. Again, he's identifying that there are lots of ways that man corrupts authority, but we need to continue to honor authority. In fact, the only exception that I've ever found in the scriptures, and I welcome you to correct me if you come up with another one, The only exception is when a delegated authority, one that is given by God, requires something of us that is clearly forbidden by God. That is the only exception I find in the scriptures. And we find that in Acts 4 and verse 19, when Peter and John were told by the civil authorities at that time to never speak in the name of Jesus. And they simply said to them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. And the answer is obvious that we ought to, first of all, obey the one that delegates authority. So husbands, if you're using your authority to tell your wives to disobey God, you're violating authority and she ought to obey God. And workers, if you're in a workplace and your boss is asking you to violate the will of God, you can't violate the will of God. You can still respect that authority in the way you 
Don't obey them, but you can't violate what God tells and what God asks us to do. I'd like you to turn now with me to Numbers 16. There is such a compelling story here. I think it has so many lessons for us. There's so many things that I see as parallels of what is happening in our world today. Before I get into chapter 16, I just want to notice a couple things that make up the context of what brought about this situation. First of all, in Numbers 15, towards the end of the chapter, in verses 32 through 36, there is a man who is found to disregard the Sabbath. He's gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And they capture this man because he's disobeying the law, and they bring him before Moses and Aaron, and Aaron's not sure what to do, and so he asks Moses and Aaron are not sure. So they ask the Lord, and the Lord directs them clearly that they ought to stone this brother, this man, out of their uh, out of the children of Israel because of his violation of the Sabbath, and, and that's what they did. In verse 36, for all the congregation brought him without the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died as the Lord commanded Moses. So that's one piece of context here. Seems a little harsh and extreme, doesn't it? I wonder if that's part of what led to chapter 16. And then in verse 37, the Lord speaks to Moses and asks them to put a border on their garments, a border, a ribbon of blue. And it's something very specific and very unique, and they're to put it there and they're to wear it. It says here to remind all the congregation of the commandments of the Lord so that they would see this fringe of blue, this ribbon of blue, and be reminded that they are God's children and they are seeking to obey God's law, not to seek after their own heart and their own eyes. That was the purpose of this. And again, it says in verse 41, I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. To be your God, I am the Lord your God. And again, that's a bit of context Something very specific God asked them to do, and I wonder if that's part of what led to chapter 16. Let me read now in chapter 16. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. So there, there's three men identified here, Korah and Dathan and Abiram. And they took men, it says, and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. So there's three men that create this movement where there's 250 other men that are well known in the community of the children of Israel. They're highly respected, highly regarded. They're princes, it says. And there's this group of three plus 250 that have gathered together. And it says they gathered themselves against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, you take too much upon you seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them, 
Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. Now I find that just chilling, what they say there. Because I've heard some of the same logic come out of people's mouths today. What are they saying? They're saying that, why are you, Moses and Aaron, believing that you are entitled to speak to us for God? Why do you think it's your place to speak on behalf of God and give us instruction and direction for how we live our lives? Because after all, all the people are holy. We're all the children of Israel. We're all God's chosen people. We all have a voice in how we ought to live our lives. I say I've heard the same logic. It's the plague of democracy pressuring upon the church. Why do we believe? Just think this through with me. I don't want to come across here that I don't value our young people, our youth. I absolutely do. I really, really do. But why do we believe that someone who has a, is a babe in Christ, literally is just beginning their walk with the Holy Spirit and understanding of the Scriptures and understanding of truth, should have equal voice with a brother or sister that has been faithfully walking with the Lord for 30 or 40 or 50 years? Why do we believe that should have equal standing? I don't think it does in the Scriptures. There is evidence over and over of this idea of submitting yourselves to the elder, of seeking the counsel of the elder. And we have this movement today that we are all one body in Christ. We ought to all have equal voice. And brothers and sisters, I've watched that take congregations in the weeds so quickly you can hardly blink fast enough to keep up. And that's not a criticism of young people. I was young once. I'm not as young anymore, and I'm still pretty young. There's a lot of things I see very differently than I did when I was 25 years old. And it's not because I didn't have a sincere heart towards the Lord when I was 25 years old. It's because life experiences change the perspective on many situations. And you just can't rush experience. There's no way to do that. So be very careful with the logic that we are all holy. Everyone has the Spirit. We can all speak truth. Yes, but not at the expense of delegated authority. What does Moses do when he hears this? Verse 4, when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. I believe Moses knew immediately that this was a terrible situation. And he spoke unto Korah and unto all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him. Even him whom he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. This do, take your censers. Uh, it's a little, I don't know how to describe it other than a little vessel with a handle where they would put a burning incense in, some hot coals in the bottom and some incense on top, and it was held as part of their religious worship. And put fire therein, and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow, and it shall be that the man whom the Lord doth choose, he shall be holy. Ye take too much upon you, ye sons of Levi. 
So Moses says here, we're going to have this contest. We're all going to fill our incense burning devices and we're going to stand before the Lord and God's going to show us who is the ones that are his voice and who are the ones that are not. And I just, it's also interesting here, Moses turns the words back on them. These men had said to Moses, you take too much upon you. What are you doing elevating yourself above the people? Moses says in response, you are taking too much upon you, these sons of Levi. And then Moses says unto Korah, Here, I pray you, ye sons of Levi, seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them? And he hath brought thee near to him and all thy brethren, the sons of Levi, with thee, and seek ye the priesthood also? For which cause... Both thou and all the company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you murmur against him? He's asking the question here to them, is it not sufficient for you that God has called you out of the congregation, out of the children of Israel, to be Levites in the service in the temple as part of the worship that God had called and God had ordained, God had delegated, God had created for them as part of their worship experience. These men were part of that. Was it not enough that they were part of that? Did they need even more? Did they have to have the priesthood as well before they were going to be satisfied? And again, I just think about those that rush the plans of God. Those that push for leadership, push for positions of authority because they are the right man for the job. Just be patient and allow God to direct your lives. There's no need to rush. In verse 12, Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, which said, we will not come up. Wow. Moses asked them to come to a meeting to discuss this situation. Nope, we're not coming. Then it goes on, and these men are still talking. These are the words of Dathan and Abiram. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of the land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, except thou make thyself altogether a prince over us? Now, what are they talking about exactly here? Remember, they were in Egypt. That's the land they're talking about. They were slaves. They had to make bricks every day, and eventually they had to make bricks and find the straw, and they were under a terrible situation. There was no milk and honey flowing in that land. But these men are saying, you brought us out of that land flowing with milk and honey. You brought us into the wilderness to die. That's a song that they couldn't stop singing from the moment they left the land of Egypt. And you're going to set yourself up as a prince over us. Now, not one of those things is true. Just think about that. Did Moses elevate himself? How did Moses end up leading the children of Israel? Because God fetched him in the desert and literally, didn't quite, but dragged him, compelled him to go into the land of Egypt and to speak to Pharaoh. He was so reluctant that God had to give in and allow Aaron to go with him as his spokesperson because Moses said, I can't speak. 
Moses didn't need us to do much speaking. He just needed to follow God's instruction. But did Moses choose to be the one to elevate himself above the children? No. Was it a land flowing with milk and honey? No. It was a land of terrible burdens, and they were crying out to God to relieve them of those burdens. Did they get taken out of the land of Egypt to be killed in the wilderness? No. The only reason they were wandering around in the wilderness still is because they disobeyed God and wouldn't go into the promised land when he brought them there and was going to have them enter in. Then he goes on in verse 14, Moreover, thou hast not brought us into a land that floweth with milk and honey, or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Wilt thou put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Again, more lies, more mistwisting of the situation. The reason they were still in the wilderness and not in the land flowing with milk and honey is because of their own rebellion against the voice of God. I would just highlight here and have you consider carefully that when there's movements pop up that are largely veiled rebellion, they usually are built on twisted truth. They usually are. The things that they are built up on are not fully accurate or not completely true. It says then in verse 15, Moses was very wroth and said unto the Lord, Respect not thou their offering. I have not taken one ass from them, neither have I hurt one of them. Moses is getting frustrated here, and he simply says, I have taken nothing from them. Verse 16, And Moses said unto Korah, Be thou and all thy company before the Lord, thou and they and Aaron, tomorrow. And take every man his censer, and put incense in them, and bring ye before the Lord every man his censer, two hundred and fifty censers, thou also, and Aaron, each one of you his censer. And they took every man his censer, that's still the incense burning device they're holding, put fire in them, and lay incense thereon, and stand, stood in the door of the tabernacle of the congregation with Moses and Aaron. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. I just want to stop here and highlight, where's the congregation right now? Standing with God? No. Standing with the rebellion. There's 250 leaders, 253 actually, that have convince the people that Moses and Aaron are out of their place. I just want to remind us that the numbers don't prove where truth lies. Be careful to seek God's face and to follow God's ways. Verse 20, The Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell upon their faces, this is Moses and Aaron praying, and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and wilt thou be wroth with all the congregation? One of the times that we see Moses and Aaron crying out for God's mercy upon these people that were opposing them, truly a sign of godly leadership. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation, saying, Get ye up from about the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, And Moses rose up and went unto Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. So they got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram on every side. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood in the door of their tents, and their wives and their sons and their little little children. 
By God's direction, Moses instructed the congregation to get back, to separate themselves from these people. And they followed Moses' instructions. And then Moses said, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of mine own mind. If these men die, the common death of all men, and if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up with all that appertaineth unto them, and they go down quick or living alive into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. Moses is simply saying that if they die a natural death, then I haven't spoken by God. But if something new happens that you've never seen before, you're going to know that God is speaking through me and not through them. And it came to pass, as he had made an evil end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave or split asunder that was under them, under Dathan and Abiram, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their houses and all the men that appertaineth unto Korah and all their goods, and they and all that appertaineth to them, everything they had, went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed up unto the, upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. And all Israel that were round about them fled at the cry of them, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up also. Can you try to envision what just happened there? The earth under them literally opened up and they went down alive into the pit. And I can only imagine what kind of noise must have been coming out of that hole as the earth opened her mouth to swallow them alive. And then the earth closed again and they were gone, all of them. I just want to highlight that there was wives and sons and little children that went down in that rebellion. In every rebellion, there is always the innocent that suffer. And I would just again caution us to think carefully about how we respond to authority. So these three men were specifically judged in a very unique, a very powerful, a thing that only God could do. But that wasn't the end of the story. There came out a fire from the Lord so this is a fire from heaven, similar, I suppose, to what came down and burnt the sacrifice on Mount Carmel and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. So there were 250 men standing there and Moses and Aaron holding these censers and a fire came down from heaven and consumed 250 men and Moses and Aaron stood there still holding their censers. And then it goes on to say, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, that he take up the censers out of the burning. So these censers were not damaged. God left them intact and scattered thou the fire yonder. So they dumped them out, for they are hallowed. The censers of those sinners against their own souls, let them make them broad plates for a covering of the altar, for they offered them before the Lord. Therefore they are hallowed, and they shall be a sign unto the children of Israel. And Eleazar, the priest, took up brazen censers wherewith they were burnt, had offered, and they, had, they were made broad plates for a covering of the altar to be a memorial unto the children of Israel that no stranger which is not of the seed of Aaron come near to offer incense before the Lord that he be not as Korah and as his company as the Lord said to him by the hand of Moses. 
So these censers were gathered. There were plates made for the altar out of this gold. And that gold was to constantly remind them, don't take more than you ought to take. Don't take a place that is not yours. Don't defy authority. Don't rebel against authority. All of these things were reminded by those plates. And again, if you can just begin to try to imagine, you just watched three men in their households be swallowed alive. You just watched 250 men that resisted God be burnt with fire that came from heaven, a supernatural event. You would think that you would be convinced that we ought to stop our rebellion and submit ourselves willingly to the leadership that Moses and Aaron have brought by the hand of God. But it is shocking to me that this is not the end of the story. It says in verse 41, On the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, another theme that never ended when they left the land of Egypt, saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. Now again, just try to wrap your minds around this. They're accusing Moses and Aaron of killing these men, these men of the Lord. Okay, if Moses and Aaron were capable of opening up the earth and having them swallowed whole down in the pit, and if they were capable of calling fire from heaven and having them burned alive, you would think, you would understand that even if it's true that they did it, we probably should submit ourselves willingly to their authority. But since it came right out of heaven and God himself did it and it had never happened before, you would recognize that that's God speaking. I just am shocked again to think about how blinding rebellion can be. This group of people came and accused Moses and Aaron. Verse 42, it came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron, that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation, and behold, the cloud covered it and, it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Get ye up from among this congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. And it fell upon their faces. Again, that's Moses and Aaron crying out to God. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer and put fire therein from off the altar, and Put on incense and go quickly into the congregation and make an atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from the Lord. The plague is begun. And Aaron took as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the congregation. And behold, the plague was begun among the people. And he put on incense and made an atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living. There were bodies already lying there. And he stood among them. And the plague was stayed or stopped. And his wrath moved out so quickly that they that died in the plague were 14,700 beside them that died about the matter of Korah, besides the 250 that were burnt and the ones that were swallowed alive. And Aaron returned unto Moses unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the plague was stayed. Brothers and sisters, does God care about rebellion? I just want us to think carefully tonight and to listen carefully. It is impossible to be right with God 
and defiant against the authority that God has set up in your lives. It's impossible. The authority of parents, of church, of government, of a boss at work, of a husband. And I will just acknowledge that I have been personally tempted many times to rebel against authority in my life. In a godly way, of course, right? We would only do it in a godly way. I think of times where I, one specific instance I remember years ago after I was just newly ordained. There was probably plenty much pride in my own abilities, but I, I wanted to have services in the community, like at a public setting. And I had all the reasons why this was going to be good. And there were a number of older brethren that I shared that with and the ministry team as well at the time, and they just did not feel good about doing that. And I could have pushed ahead. And I believe that I could have had much of the people gather with me behind me to do that. But it would have been an act of rebellion against the authority that God had put in my life. And I am convinced, and I have made it a goal of my life, to commit to surrendering willingly to the authorities in my life. And I believe with all my heart that if I want to experience the blessings of God on my life and on my ministry, I must continue to walk in a submissive, obedient attitude towards these imperfect authorities that God has brought into my life. God cannot bless rebellion. He will not bless rebellion. It might look like it for a while. If you will be godly, you must be submissive. If I will be godly, I must be submissive. Willingly and cheerfully lining ourselves up under the imperfect authorities that God has placed in our lives. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There is a clear connection between the submitting to God and the fleeing of the devil. And that submitting to God comes through this channel of authority that he has us under. Rebellion leads to great delusion. You saw in the children there of Israel and of Korah and Dathan and Abiram, the things they were saying, the things they believed in their minds were so far off. It still happens today. This is very, very serious business. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 15, verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And I always thought that's a pretty extreme verse, isn't it? Rebellion, like witchcraft, after all, witchcraft is literally going to the devil to seek counsel of how I ought to live my life and to give the devil the power to direct my life. How is rebellion the same as that? Well, as I studied and as I thought about this, it's really quite simple. Witchcraft is literally divination, divining. It's going to a different source for direction and for truth. That other source is the only other power in the world, the devil. You know what re rebellion is? It's to reject the authority of God, and it's also then opening me up to another source. I know best. I know better. I'm going to do it my way. Rebellion is to align with the devil and not with God. That's what it is. It is of like kind to witchcraft. And rebellion we cling to it will split us from God and take us to the same pit that Korah and Dathan 
and Abiram found themselves alive into. Let's bow our heads to pray tonight. Father, we come to you again this evening. We thank you for your word. We thank you for these graphic accounts in scripture that give us these powerful lessons. And Lord, it's hard for us to imagine how those minds way back there and that story could get so perverted and twisted to believe such lies. And yet, Lord, they're there. Those lessons are there for our instruction. And it's just as possible today that we can be deceived and believe lies and amplify untruths in our minds to the point where we can justify things that are just as vile, just as wrong. And I believe that you clearly instruct that your response, your view on rebellion has not changed. I just pray tonight that you would speak to each heart. If there is someone here that is defiant, rebellious against the authority that you have brought into their life, I pray that you would show them clearly, pull back the deception and the lies they are believing and help them to see themselves as you see them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And again, I would just invite you as we sing an invitation to think carefully. Young people, are you living defiant disobedience to your parents? Are you in defiance and against the church? Are you disobeying and standing back against the will of your brothers and sisters? In the workplace, are you ignoring commands, cheating on hours and doing shoddy work and so on? Wives, are you being submissive and cooperative with your husbands? Or do you feel you need to guide him? Are you using persuasive manipulation to get your way? Are you living in an underhanded rebellion against your husband? Maybe you don't like the word rebellion. Rebellion just literally means to refuse to submit. That's what it means. And to submit is to end the resistance. And tonight I would just invite you to end the resistance, if that's where you're at. And I would just remind us that if Korah could speak tonight, he would beg of you to repent of rebellion before it's too late. We're going to sing a verse of song again, and if God's speaking to you about rebellion, resistance in your heart, I would encourage you to come forward.
Again, I thank you for your prayers. I thank you for your attentiveness. Thank you for your attendance. Our bodies are getting weary, but our cups are being filled, and I pray that you would continue to come and to pray. Let's stand together for dismissal.